Welcome back. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back to Primordial Dao Present Dao. This is part two of episode 10, Negong, an intentional unraveling or a wholehearted reunion. We're still deciding on the title. We're still deciding. <laughs> <laughs> they both sound so good, Mike. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to have to use them both. I don't know. Yeah. It'll take up a lot of space, but. That's okay. Bandwidth is pretty pretty cheap these days. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so part two of this, uh, we're going to get into um, some, some Mike's teaching in Nagon course, which I'm going to be attending in about, what is it, about a month here? A couple of months. In about a couple of months. So, first of all, very exciting. Oh, yeah. Th- th- this this is going to be, uh, yeah. Let's jump off some diving boards. Yeah, into oceans, beyond oceans, beyond oceans. Yes. And so, we're going to get into the process. Um, there's a way that you teach this uh, through these six grottos, six, mm. these six passes, I believe. And um, so, we're going to start with the first one. Yeah, well, I guess first, let's just... Uh, what is a grotto? That's a great question. Um, do you want me to answer that one? Well, I mean, I'm not sure your puppy dog's going to be able to pull it <laughs> out there. So. <laughs> so, from my understanding, a grotto would be kind of like, on some level, it's, if we think of it physically, it's like a cave or like somewhere where you would enter and uh, maybe you would come out transformed or come out with some sort of knowledge or... A, an awareness yeah so in in Taoist tradition i mean I, it's always weird when i say in Taoist tradition like i'm speaking for all of Taoism because i'm not i'm speaking for the very narrow <laughs> little threads that i've had a chance to uh i guess attach myself to and learn from uh although having said that i mean this is a pretty consistent thing in Taoist uh, literature uh, a grotto is in a way um like you said, an environment that you enter into, but it has this idea, this potential of engaging with the mystery. Because, you know, you're the kind of like, I guess the traditional story is a person goes off and they, they, you know, they were given a scroll or a teaching or a practice and now they're going off to engage in the practice. But as Taoist, you know, storytelling often goes as you meet someone at an inn or in the forest or something and they take you to their grotto or their hut or their, you know, a place and uh, take you much deeper or beyond the beyond, right? And there's sort of a quality of uh, beyond the profound and beyond the, the knowable. And you come out of that grotto as someone who now has been kind of to the other side of what the the world might be. So there are many potential grottos uh, in the world, just like if you were to cross a desert, there's hopefully many oases that you can stop, stop at and, you know, kind of feed your camel and, you know, take a drink and have a bath or whatever. But each time you go into a grotto and come out or go into deep immersive practice, say go off for months, you know, into a monastery or something like that and come back out, you're now that beingness, you're now that transformed one, you know, or less or more or this or that, you know, in in some way. So the implied opportunity is to go and um, allow and engage 
and come back into the mundane in another way. And that's something that I think happens every time you go to sleep and have a profound dream or maybe meet a, a lover who somehow changes your perception of what it is to be engaged in lovering or being in relation canoes or relationships or however you want to talk about, you know, pair bonding. So each successive relationship we have, each successive grotto we have, each successive teacher we have, uh, you know, maybe even, I was just thinking even in the context of a lot of modern people on on a spiritual path are doing things like ayahuasca and huachuma and peyote and uh i don't know microdosing mushrooms or other things like that those are grottos in the sense that you enter in and you come out someone else a bit so just to put that in the in that context is we need those things and the way that I was taught is, wouldn't it be a really good thing if we had a few of those in an order that you could sort of space out and pace out at the you know, rate at which you actually feel compelled to learn or drawn to learn or maybe have the opportunity to learn? And uh, that's the way I've come to teach is there's sort of six things you need to do or undo or <laughs> <laughs> nice. go through uh, <clears throat> to learn enough about the practical parts of Nekong and Nedan and, you know, perhaps Qigong as well to have a practice. And when you've learned that, and it, it might take you six months or, you know, I guess if I write this as a book someday, as long as it would take to really practically experience what's in, in that book. Um, now you have the tools to, for the rest of your life, keep going through those grottos. And every time you go through them over and over and over again, the one going in, entering into the mystery, has more or less t to work with in different ways. And the one coming out has more or less refinement or transformation or reunion to, to um, move through life with or without. And it's just that, you know, because there's a doing and an undoing to, to these things that's sort of left foot, right foot. And there's also, um, and I mean, this is a tricky thing, and I, I kind of realize I'm kind of going where my mind wants to go with this, but there's this sort of compulsion in, in Western spiritual practice, contemporary spiritual practice, to have a finish line. And that's not irrelevant, but it's very much anticipatory. And it's very compelling, but it's also very much about the procedural part and how far you are. And <laughs> this is maybe really distracting, but there was this funny uh, comedic rap song that was meant to be like a joke. And a part of the rap song was a person bragging about, I did a 40-minute meditation in five. Now I got an hour to be with my jive and blah, blah, blah. <coughs> but in the context that there's some way you can trick practice to make it happen more uh, rapidly or to get to the proverbial finish line because it's about the finish line. And that's where this sort of spiraling in through the grottos uh, of, of interactive coherence, you know, as, as we learn, learn about it more and more, just becomes the joyous kind of like canoeing off of a waterfall into the liminal over and over and over again with more or less baggage, more or less awareness, more or less intention, more or less surrender, more or less courage, more or less chaos, 
you know, as, as we journey through it. And, and that's why, like, indigenous traditions, Taoist traditions, always taught in circles and spirals. And a lot of contemporary traditions are always taught like ladders. So I just want to frame that when we have this conversation. I'm talking about an infinitely regressing fractal spiral. I'm not talking about a finish line. Yeah, as much as, <clears throat> as much as, you know, we've talked about that, like, a lot, it's funny because the mind still wants that finish line. And so there's still, like, a... In my experience, there's still a little bit of a feeling of, like, oh, I can't wait till I'm done. But that's not a thing. <laughs> well, it is, though. I mean, but it just keeps happening. And, and like, that's it. we'll come up to this uh, context in a bit. Like, who is the one meditating? Like, that, that determines every part of it and that's going to keep changing and i mean i i started inquiry about what awareness was when i was five years old after a severely traumatic event and i couldn't sleep and i was trying to levitate in bed as a five-year-old so that i could relax my body after this really bad thing happened and then my parents because i was relentlessly trying to learn how to meditate living in a hunting lodge in the middle of nowhere with minimal electricity no access to tv or radio and they bought me a book on ESP of all things because it was the closest thing they could find because I was harassing them about meditation because I can't remember where I learned about the idea, but that's all I wanted to do. And um, I was compelled by, a, you know, perhaps negative experience, but I couldn't be at peace in my body. And then I tried to learn meditation from a book at eight. And then we moved to the city and I started learning meditation kind of in a karate class when I was 10. And then, like I said, all the other teachers I've had since then. And um it's the same game no matter where you're at i mean I, I could say i've been training for 50 years or 45 years or 37 years depending on what rubric of you know whoever the arbiter of training is in the sense of that's real and that's not real um i'm just a big fan of the opportunity to I, just be allowed to unravel the boundaries between what this really is and what this really isn't <laughs> or what what this is for and maybe what it's been uh, abused to becoming in. Uh, that's the, it's the same terrain for all of us in a way, you know. So although there are maybe kind of the compelling finish lines to, to keep us moving, uh, they, they matter, but they, they keep re reappearing after you go through each one of them. Right. You know. But there's definitely... Um I guess two and a bit years into my Qigong practice, um, there's definitely change in process and yeah, there's as much as it's a spiral and a cyclical, there's definitely a linear nature of like, holy crap, look where I'm at now compared to last year. Mm. Yeah. And way to go on practicing your practice, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> well, thank you. Cause you're the only one doing that part. <laughs> you're, you're the only one who can do that part. So yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I think once you actually realize like what all of this is for, it, I think, I think you had a similar experience where you kind of just got a little bit obsessed about it. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a lot of what I think about throughout the day. And when I mean, think about it, it's like, what's going on with my feet? How's my hips? How, where's, where's my breath at? And so, you know, where, whereas before a lot of the attention was spent probably unconsciously, now a lot of it's spent maybe a little bit more consciously um, and in a deeper collaboration and relationship with the body. Yeah. 
And I appreciate the the context of obsessed, but the the word has a few other little hang-ups attached to it. So I think I would, instead of using the word obsessed, say non-negotiable. What, what I'm doing with practice is no longer negotiable. That's, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, but it's, it's you have to be obsessed to <laughs> non-negotiable <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now that we know what grottos are, Mike, uh, what's the first one? I usually refer to this as uh, life exists between yin and yang. Now that that's sort of the typical Chinese medicine kind of first chapter of Chinese medicine and in a way what we mean by the Taoist cosmology and uh, and all of that. So in the classics we talk about, you know, qi exists between yin and yang and qi is expressed through the five phases or the five elements. So we want to learn practices that help us engage in yin yang and like there's the one we do called the tian di hui fa, the, you know, the reunification of, of the sky and the land. Uh, through our actual embodied practice. And that's a pretty easy practice to do. And then there's a lot of five element Qigong. I think we've done some and we'll be doing a few other ones um, so that we can experientially integrate what the dynamic uh, phases are or qualities of aliveness that is you know implied by what we call five elements. And not to go into this for more than a minute, but the problem with the word five elements is an element is a thing and a thing is very concrete and a phase or xing as wu xing is implied is a, a quality of state of being right it, it's not a thing so five elements can be tricky uh in the west because we sort of wood metal and it's like well not the best translation right because that's not experiential in the way that the more implicit translations might be so we want to start off with really making sure we're sure that that's something we have uh i don't you know the term emotional intelligence this is kind of like chi intelligence like we understand yin yang we understand wu sing five phases uh experientially so that when we start interacting more in depth with the, the tangible and tangible parts of practice we we have a a bit of a compass um the next thing that we get into is learning uh, what's called the willow dance which is a, a way of interacting with your primary uh, meridians or the uh, people might call them post heaven or I often refer to them as the epigenetic meridians the one that are still kind of uh, the, the ones that are present to the modern world made of the modern world and helping you uh, grow heal and you know stay alive in the modern world they're often also called kind of regular meridians or the 12 meridians so there's a Qigong practice called the willow dance where we actually dance the meridians and it can get quite in depth in that way. Usually we would want to have people uh, having done enough Taoyin to explore what's called Yi Chen Qing, or the kind of transformational reorientation and tensegrity of all of your meridians as fascia, as connective tissue, so that when you're working with your meridians, you, you have a, a pretty good sandbox you know you really know what movement and and pliability and flexibility and tone and strength and tension are so that your meridians can conduct uh chi in a way that's safer and and more you could say voluminous or more uh well this is a weird version but i just 
popped into my mind, like the idea of being more engorged, you know, in, in the sense of sexual organs. When we start working with uh, building a dantian and, and building more chi in, in, in that aspect of practice, which we'll get into in a bit, um, your meridians have to be able to work with all of that energy um, in a way that's safe right so you need just you could say you just need to kind of like if you had a house with a lot of plumbing you need to make better plumbing and and that kind of leans the conversation towards chi as a thing moving through pipes and that's not really exactly what we're speaking about but in english that's really the only way to talk about it because otherwise we're gonna have to be talking about the physics of fascia and molecules and stuff which we could also get into if you want but Maybe a little bit. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. But, there, I mean, there is an actual physics to, to this, uh, as well as sort of the esoteric understanding that early practitioners who didn't have modern physics and uh, bioluminosity and, and stuff to, to work with. So they just inferred what was going on. Um, but that's why we want to really understand the meridian so that we can become, in the sense of gong, like qigong, more of a capacitor, more... Uh, safely able to conduct a lot of energy and have, or I don't want to say store, store isn't really the right word because store seems permanent, but hold in our practice, in our Dantian, in our meridians, a, a more vast experiential quality of chi and, and chi movement and, and chi refinement and playing with your jing chi and shun and, and stuff like that. So that that's the first grotto is, well, what is the chi universe? How do we interact with it intelligently and consistently and perhaps progressively, predictably? And uh, how can we interact with our breath and dantian and uh, embodiment in a, in a way that builds all of that without us going crazy or hurting ourselves? Because that's option two is pull in the china shop and hope you're okay. And that's why these traditions know have, have the practices that they do because if you can't open your meridians why would you want to fill up your dantian because um, what do you think is going to happen <laughs> yeah would current like current running through be a good analogy because it's like okay it's like we're going to mm -hmm. put a bigger battery in there but like our yeah you, you want better wiring and you want better coating on the wiring yeah or else it's like you're just going to melt gotta, it down you open the wiring get the coating and maybe a little bit thicker wires yeah. Uh, so if we if we have all of that going on, uh, then the interactive part becomes uh, more about breath work. Because if you're going to work with Dan Tian Ing, which might be a fun word to make up, um, you're going to interact with Dan Tian practice through breath work. And the first thing that you're going to end up with is uh, the false Dan Tian experience. So that's step one is... Here's yin and yang, here's five of five phases, here's your meridians, here's your dantian through breath work, and the first thing you're gonna find isn't the thing you think it is. So do you wanna so Mike, do you wanna touch a little bit on uh I don't know if we've talked about this a whole lot in, in this podcast series, but uh you talk about the idea of this false dantian and uh, do you wanna to touch on how there might be a perception of like dantian as just being like a location in the body? Yeah, that, that's the thing that, that you see, um, and, and this conversation is going to keep happening uh, in the West, it's going to keep happening in China, because when we approach th the Dantian experience, and there's one, but there's three, well, but there's six, but there's actually nine, 
if we talk about the chakra system, I think there's seven or eight or nine, but there's really 120 depending on which of the uh, ancient, you know, sutras and Upanishads and stuff like that you, you read. So the idea of Dantian as a literal thing or locus or a location uh, is a left brain anticipatory part of, of, you know, all this stuff around the world, right? So we're inevitably going to be dealing with that. Uh, and the distraction of things like the chainsaw or whatever that machine is this <laughs> on the other side of this, you know, <laughs> little village we're in. So as we, you know, fulfill certain components of practice, we are going to find ourselves engaged in the center of gravity. And then as we play with breathwork, what's, especially what's called Neqiang breathwork or sort of the three-dimensional anatomy and experience of how breathing happens and and how the more you are connected to your diaphragm your pineal floor your breathing muscles uh, especially around what we call lower dantian how the center of that breathing space and i usually describe that as a flexible egg so let's let's do some inner egg breathing and then sorry said i'm in yeah well we're not going to do that right now <laughs> we're going to do our podcast with a lot of noise in the background but uh, if you can imagine that as the listener that we're breathing and we're imagining that we're breathing into a flexible egg and that egg has its sort of visual somatic shape in space. And like all good eggs, it has a yolk. And that yolk has a nature. So we can at first notice that yolk has a location that's within the membranes of how you experience your breath in your body. Um, and that's that false tantien is where you first engage something to do with center of gravity, center of movement, center of proprioception, center of that egg of breathing. And that, that, that locus of a certain kind of, oh, that's where I begin. Hmm. Now, that, it doesn't matter where that is in the sense of where of the where. It matters that you actually find one. And by finding one, you mean having a felt sense experience of one. Yeah. Right. So let's take a moment and step back and go, well, who is the one meditating? And we'll come back to that in a bit. We're talking about people in 2023 who have cortisol, dopamine, serotonin, and insulin dysregulation to such a degree that we live in the sense of meridians around the belt meridian, Dai Mai, Du Mai, Ran Mai, Chong Mai, like the central meridians of, of Nagong practice uh, in our work practice, at least uh, for the first while. Um that location is determined by who is the one meditating. And if we're living anticipatory lives and we're uptight in a way, our belt meridian is, dis is disoriented in a way to actual stillness, actual rest states, actually being bored and not being like pathologically disturbed by the experience of being bored. Cause, Oh my God, I got to check, like check my phone or do whatever the relative dislocation or falseness of where we find Dantian has gotten worse in, in the last 20 years than, than I would have ever thought was possible. And worse isn't on a scale of cool or uncool or better or worse in, in the judgy sense. It's more in the sense of the amount of time it's going to take us to learn to get really deeply viscerally relaxed so that how we breathe in the, in the mechanical sense of just membranes and movements changes enough that the location of how you center yourself 
is low enough in your body that the back of your brain registers you're in a parasympathetic deep state of safety and stillness and resourcefulness and the opposite of boredom in being. And then I'm going to take a little aside for a moment. Um, I guess having an indigenous background growing up on hunting lodge, spending a lot of my adult life taking people into the bush to, to experience what hunting and fishing and trapping and tracking and starting fires with sticks is like. Um, most of human history has been waiting. And probably very attentive waiting. Very attentive, anticipatory, like, holy crap, I hope I get food. But also below the anticipatory mind into the actual immersive mind. Because as early hunter-gatherers, which is 90-something percent of all human, you know, ancestral conditioning, waiting is most of life. If you're not good at waiting, Nagong is going to piss you off. <laughs> 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 and it's going to piss everybody off for a while because we're modern humans, right? And I mean that with a lot of humor. I'm glad we're laughing about that. But that's sort of the rubric or the, the that real barrier of the barrier of sitting is waiting and waiting skillfully is a location in the body waiting is squatting you know in, in maybe the literal sense of opening your quad and being comfortable just splayed out in your pelvis and your belly and your diaphragm and your pineal floor and breathing with complete visceral awareness and tone because not only do you have to wait while you're hunting wait while you're fishing wait while you're trapping wait for while you're waiting for most of human history outside of the equator, waiting has been six months a year in winter, just sitting and waiting and pendiculating and stretching. And that's where Yijin Jin comes from, is the animal-like need to mobilize your fascia so you don't stiffen up into a ball of pain, which is another part of the barrier of sitting. Um, I mean, the Yijin Jin came about uh, in the Shaolin Temple because of the barrier of sitting and, and using Qigong and like what people might construe as a yogic kind of practice. Um, to stretch the body and strengthen the body so we can sit longer and have good posture. So that that's a big part of like the meridian part and the breathwork part and the Dantian part is how good are you at waiting and then waiting as fascia and waiting as breath membranes and then waiting as core instinctual alertness states and then waiting into the deep liminal parasympathetic wow of now and the howling silence of now and the permission to not anticipate, but to interact. Right? Because, I mean, that, that, that's, I mean, that's for some people, like, the first 10 years of, of meditation is just, I am so impatient and, and so separate and so anxious and, you know, that the undoing is the doing. So that's what the false Dantian is, is to help, you know, practitioners go okay i get the why that this this whole thing is is a felt sense uh immersive practice and these are the things we need to interact with to to just begin the beginning and they begin the undoing of the conditioned you know alertness states and stuff so that dantian actually becomes uh an innate locus uh, of embodied centeredness and the location is going to be different every time you practice and i love saying that out loud because it sort of pokes people in the face who think that you can measure it you know as like a you know you can measure it like an acupuncture point because it's it's a relationship and sure it gets kind of consistent and it can definitely 
present some uh, baubles or shiny things to distract you about what it's for and what to do or not do there. Uh, but that's why you need a teacher and uh, several grottos to, to get through all that stuff. You know, but the Dantian part of it is, you know, it's not the location, it's the interactive potential. Right? Location helps, but at the beginning it's 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 determined by modern life more than the ninety something percent of human existence sitting and waiting as as your default state. Yeah, so that'd probably be like one of the first steps to building I guess what they call the Neijing or like your inner landscape. Yeah. Yeah, that brings us to the, the second grotto, which is all about that. So just before we dive into that, the the thing that's important, and I, I guess I have to, I'm going to probably have to keep bringing this up, the Yi Dao Huan Yuan tradition of Taoist practice is a medical tradition. It's focused on healing disorientations of, of mind, body, and self. So I guess maybe perhaps unlike, I don't know every other Neigong tradition, but perhaps unlike some other ascetic traditions or monastic traditions the focus is on a progressive undoing of disorientation like that idea of ching dripping so when we we begin going deeper into the practice the assumption is is that you're probably wounded in some way and we should take care of those implicit core wounds of of being a separate self or being a traumatized self or having gone through western high school or whatever so that our practice is practical you know in that way and uh, we can use breath work and down regulation and 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 the predictability of, of skillfulness to get beneath the conditioned mind to start deconstructing the conditioned mind so that our practice isn't um and i mean i don't know how else to put this but um and i hope this doesn't offend people who have it all figured out but uh, if you're going to go into a slightly addled, conditioned, modern, Western human being and oppress them with a whole bunch of right and wrong, that's what you're doing. Like, this is what we obey. This is the do. This is the this. This is the that. This is what you're, this is the new normal or the new, uh, infrastructure of being and everything else you just should ignore. Uh, that that's never going to work, and in fact, you're you're literally domesticating a domesticated animal twice to prove a point about being right about something esoteric that has nothing to do with words. So, mm. oh my god! <laughs> oh, so so sometimes it's chaos. I don't know. I, I guess I just sort of like to throw that out there that you know if we're going to take this seriously, maybe we should look at the terrain we're working with and yeah, the uh, idea of right and wrong. The idea that you you if you believe you have the complete system and you're going to just lay it over top of a completely gibbled animal and and just make it obey that and suddenly be better by that without first healing, that's why the Ida Huanyuan tradition probably exists. Is that's hasn't flown for five hundred years, so it's probably not going to work now. Agreed, especially because we've talked about the last twenty years and humanity and yeah, yeah. So if we're going to get into the second grotto, which talks a little bit about the, the inner landscape part of our experience and, and a little bit about sort of who is the one meditating, I, I just want to speak a little bit quickly to the, the value of coherent breath work. The limiting factor to all of that is this capacity we call Ting Jin, which kind of means to listen, but 
but it also means to kind of to reach with your awareness with your whole body and being in every way so as we have something as rhythmic and consistent and dynamic <coughs> uh, as many kinds of breath work we have now the opportunity to use our awareness and attention interactively with all of those membranes to become very present but also to locate ourselves within that movement and, and that rhythm and that ocean-like uh, process of breathing and before I move on from that uh, just because of sort of the science of this what we can actually tangibly experience and I would say accomplish with very coherent breath work from a clinical point of view around how parasympathetic sympathetic states determine who is the one meditating how much your polyvagal system of self-protection and survival how much your vagus nerve is involved in certain membranes of, of breath work um, breath work is the the shit as they say because it's a tangible thing that we can measure scientifically that changes the dynamic of of your whole biology so when we're actually wanting to go into immersive states and and use state shift in in the embodied way that we do with with naigong practice and a, a lot of qigong practice i just sometimes like to sort of take a little moment and say and this actually works you know like this is a measurable thing this is not just a woo woo what if esoteric you know dance of you know leprechauns and maybes like that this this people figured this out they didn't have the tools we have now to measure what they were doing but they were measuring tangibly the the process and the outcome and and now we know how and why which for me motivates me as as a teacher and as a practitioner but it also in a way i guess maybe this is the wrong way to say it but it speeds up the way we all approach this because now we're knowing how and why it works so when we engage in it we're not just sort of riding the 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 hopeful elephant of maybe esoteric things are going to get us somewhere we're literally paddling the canoe up the river of this is how you rearrange your physiology and why not and of course and almost like duh <laughs> like of course that's the, the thing we have to do to, to get into deeper threshold states mm -hmm. uh you know of stillness and things like that but we also need the, that inner landscape. So we have the meridian system. We have the more extraordinary or kind of pre-genetic meridians that, that make up uh, the microcosmic orbit and, and you know all of the Dantian components of, of practice. So as we get into more tangible locations, more tangible breath work, more tangibleness because we're learning Tingjin or to really listen to you know the, the embodied experience very coherently, um, the landscape is the way it's described in the classics, you know, in its potential. But then there's also the landscape as each of us individually experiences our, our body. And this is where we talk about who is the one meditating in the sense of the three selves. And early in the conversation, you said, yeah, this is kind of like the horse. So in the San Dao, the threefold path of Taoist practice, we have the instinctual animal part which is kind of like, you know, riding a horse or if you want to ride something else than a horse, pick something, you know, unicorn, elephant, you know, dragon. spaceship, dragon, whatever you like. 
Um, and sometimes I do that clinically with people when I'm trying to help them reorient themselves in a practice. So you pick what you're riding. It could be a mythical being. It could be a horse. It could be Harley Davidson. It's up, up to you. As long <laughs> as it's in some way like alive and it can communicate with you, then it's, you know, a part of the process because we are all riding on the back of our animal brain. So if we can have that instinctual animistic self, step one and then we have the rider and i often kind of playfully talk about the rider as a cowboy or cowgirl because cowboy cowgirl music is very sentimental you know my dog just died my truck don't work and uh, <laughs> somebody just left me with a whole bunch of bills you know or, or something and I, I grew up kind of in that environment so <laughs> um i have an appreciation aversion to uh, that music in different days depending on the day but it kind of brings up that part of like, yeah, sentiment and feeling and, and kind of the burden of, of our uh, upbringing as relationship-driven animals, right? So what is my intuition? What is my sentimental self? What do, what do I carry as emotional baggage? Because that's going to be the rider on the horse. And then the rider on the horse, the intuitive emotional self on top of the instinctual, perhaps triggered, perhaps comfortable waiting self is looking into the future or listening looking into the spiritual listening looking into the esoteric the existential through what you might call some binoculars or a little telescope so here's your horse here's the rider cow person and here's the person looking over the horizon at where you're going and why you're going that way right so this is obviously about the talking mind but also the feeling body but also the emotional self because you might want to get those proverbial ducks or horses or cow people in a row as you engage in years and years of practice. You know, what has happened to your horse? What has happened to your cowboy or cowgirl? You know, and I always come up to high school because that's sort of the big conditioning uh, buffet of modern humans is, you know, were you cool? Were you the this or the that? And how did your sexual maturity process go? And, you know, did your parents dress you up in a way that made your life better or worse you know and you know given the racism of modern life and the movement of populations around the world and you and i for various reasons experience various parts of the racism in in, in you know that part of our lives so you know that's a big that's a big part of social orientation disorientation so if we're going to look at ching dripping as the thing we're working through even if we don't want to believe that we might have something to work through those three selves are a part of your inner map. You know, and then we have the esoteric map, like the Neijing Tu, that diagram that a lot of people see that's sort of like a mimicking of the spinal column with a lot of inner terrains and terrariums and cow herds and, you know... Uh, water wheels. And water wheels and girls making silk and, you know... Uh, Buddhas and Dharmas and Taoists and, you know, kind of guiding us through the process of, of a very kind of rough uh, version of Nathan or the alchemic uh, work. So if we could have a landscape of meridians, landscape of extraordinary meridians, a landscape of Dantians, landscape of three selves, landscape of embodied states, uh, and a real compassionate, patient understanding of who is the one engaging in practice, now we can go deeper into maybe the three dantian, the, the core yoke within the eggs of the three embodied selves as uh, capacities and as capacitors, because that's what we're building. We're building dantians to build capacities, to be good at waiting in very specific ways so that 
some transitional things can happen. And those transitions happen through the barrier of patience. Because you can set all of this stuff up, but you can't be the one making the next thing happen. And this brings up a really weird thing. Um, I didn't really plan on talking about this, but I'm going to dive into it quickly. In one indigenous tradition that I'm a part of, we have four puberties. Now, a funny thing about puberty, we all hopefully remember them if you've been through at least one, is you had no choice. You were going to go from child to adult through puberty. And that's kind of a funny Western myth that it just happens once. But if there's more than one puberty, and like there's a, there's a Western astrology context where the second puberty called Saturn return, right? So let's say that we're all going to, at 28 years old, go through some transitional uh, shift if we permit ourselves to do so or if we you know, hold on with white knuckles to try and avoid it. The implication is that the one before the puberty is no longer going to exist and the one after the puberty is going to somehow become the one present to existence. Now, if the one before your puberty plans out who you're going to be after your puberty, guess what? You just deflected puberty, mm. right? So if you want to go from adolescent at 28 to mature person, maybe around 32, which is how it's described in, in the indigenous tradition, um, you kind of have to go through this process of a few years of giving up on knowing who you're going to be as an adult to actually become who you're going to be as an adult, which is kind of like going slightly crazy because you have to stop relying on certain parts of yourself that got you here to find out what parts of yourself are going to get you to the next puberty, which might be showing up in 15 years. So <laughs> maybe in your midlife crisis, you're going to have to give up on all your adolescent and perhaps adult conditioning once again to be comfortable engaging with the kind of self you're going to become in your midlife into your 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then you're going to go through it again when you become an elder. So ha ha ha. This whole process of finally getting it right in finish line thinking is never going to really get you where you're going. And what if in this infinite fractal regress of what Nekong implies and, and alchemy implies, the process might be the point instead of the outcome, right? So this is the, the fun of that second grotto is... Let's really engage in what 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 our formative self is and what deconstructing that is from a self point of view. And let's really engage in the landscape with a lot of tangible interaction, a lot of Ting Jin. Um, and, and maybe even more aspects of breath work uh, so that we're anchoring ourselves in parts of the practice and, and, and kind of relinquishing the who is the one practicing gradually.